Welcome to the Tiwahanga Infrastructure for a Better Future podcast, a series where we talk to experts both from here and overseas about the infrastructure challenges we are facing. The episodes focus on the key areas of Rautaki Hanganga o Aotearoa, New Zealand's infrastructure strategy. Find out more about the strategy at strategy.tiwahanga.govt.nz. Years of underinvestment in hospitals and other public health facilities mean that many are no longer fit for purpose. In many regions of New Zealand, the state of our infrastructure is directly contributing to inequities in health outcomes. The health reforms currently underway offer an unprecedented opportunity to deliver a step change in how we plan and deliver health infrastructure. It gives us a chance to think about investment at the national level, getting better outcomes from our infrastructure spend. Recommendations from a recent health infrastructure report by Robert Rust show just how to do this. Most of Robert's 40-year career has been on major projects across the private and public sectors. His public sector work has been at the chief executive and chief operating officer level, including developing and delivering a portfolio of projects for New South Wales Health. Robert recently visited New Zealand and Tiwai Hunga asked him to unpack some of his key findings with us. Daria Siva, Senior Advisor, asks the questions. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Daria. Um, really great to have you here. Looking forward to your insights. Um, I'd just like to ask you a few questions. Why was Health Infrastructure New South Wales created? Well, f- health tr- traditionally delivered its capital works through the health agency. And when you have a, a significant a case in New South Wales, and I'm sure in many other jurisdictions, a significant recurrent budget, often the infrastructure is seen as somewhat second string. Um, obviously, when major projects come along, that's not the case, but in, in more, the more routine delivery uh, and sit within the organisation, um, sometimes uh, well down the, the hierarchy and perhaps don't get uh, the level of in, uh, independence and authority that's necessary to, to carry out capital works. So generally, um, it's not having the sort of direct access that you need to decision makers, to treasury, uh, to broader government uh, on major projects to make them to, to enable them to be delivered successfully. So I think over time, uh, in particular New South Wales, but many jurisdictions are looking at specialised uh, capital works agencies setting them up and using them for delivery of major projects Uh, and some of those are as you've said independent um, where the projects are um, don't sit within the broader agency Uh, so the uh, the other issue with in new south wales health is that the director general spent a significant amount of her time dealing with capital works issues which really is not her reason for being she was there to deliver health services and an independent agency enabled her to effectively distance herself somewhat from the capital works whilst retaining responsibility for it. And the health infrastructure unit had to then respond to the the queries and criticisms of the market. Uh, And that freed up her time to do, as I say, to focus on what was more important to her. You've had a lot of experience uh, working at Health Infrastructure New South Wales. I'd like to understand what makes standalone infrastructure units successful. Um, well, in a sense, st- uh, they're not entirely standalone, and it's, it's, it's a fair question. Um, 
New South, most of the infrastructure units that are successful sit within the agencies. Now, New South Wales has has tried uh, standalone agencies where they are genuinely genuinely separate from the from the agency that they're servicing, and that didn't meet with a lot of success. Um, so, generally, they sit within the agency, but they do enjoy uh, a significant amount of independence. Um, generally answering through to a director general. Um, a feature of many of those agencies is an external board, advisory board, um, whose job it is to, I guess, ensure that, that that agency is delivering what it's required to, but equally enables uh, ministers, directors general and uh, executives to satisfy themselves that uh, what that standalone agency is doing is being done properly and successfully and gives them an avenue to, to understand the performance. Um, the agencies really need to be able to respond uh, to the demands of a construction environment which are dramatically different to the demands that exist within an uh, agency delivering services uh, with a recurrent budget on an annual basis and construction projects extend over a number of years. They involve significant expenditure. They involve and they require a level of contingency because no project can be designed absolutely. And so using that contingency sensibly and effectively is a measure that's often used to, to look at success. And then there's just a simple matter of construction projects being difficult, both in terms of time and in terms of cost, and being able to monitor that and understand when projects won't be delivered, contrary to a minister's uh, statements, and how that's communicated back to government and in turn to stakeholders in a way uh, that, that uh, enables them to understand the issues that have been confronted, many of which are out of the control of all parties. And, and we only have to look at COVID to understand uh, how you can get issues that, that, that are impossible to deal with and just need to be accommodated within the broader program. So what do you see as the biggest challenge, challenges for the new head of health infrastructure? Um, well, very unquestionably getting the confidence and trust of government. Um, the new health infrastructure unit um, has a number of projects ahead of it. It's working in a very difficult environment uh, and government being confident that it can uh, lead its projects with the unit and expect that they'll be delivered successfully uh, is critical uh, to it getting the freedoms that it needs to continue to do, to build major projects. Um, what does that look like? Um, look, it's, it's, it's delivering projects successfully, but more importantly, that, that people remain fully informed um, when issues arise. As I said before, we're in a, it's a difficult environment. Um, not only is the construction market struggling uh, to deliver um, due to the impacts of COVID, but equally you have a massive program of uh, projects to be, de to be delivered and you're standing up a brand new organisation within uh, the broader health system, which itself is undergoing significant change. And all of that, um, I guess, Will make it difficult for an organisation to to operate successfully. Yeah, 
with the, with that extent, with that amount of change occurring, and um, being able to do so will be critical to a success. How do you ensure that capital renewals and maintenance get as much attention as new builds? Uh, government policy, I think, is changing in this area, and New Zealand has policies which require um, agencies to to uh, properly ma uh, manage assets, to make sure that they sweat them, that they, they get the full value out of their life cycle. And to do that, um, obviously preventative maintenance is a critical part of that, is, as is appropriate upgrades as and when required to keep them capable of delivering services uh, in, a, in meeting contemporary sort of standards. Um, most jurisdictions, I think, suffer from underinvestment in this area traditionally, and again, you're seeing a number of governments move to requiring agencies to, to properly manage assets through the life cycle. And that simply means that if money is provided to maintain an asset, it must be used to maintain it. And preventative maintenance, unfortunately, is an area where it doesn't necessarily, in, you know, it's not necessarily clear that maintenance needs to occur because you're doing it in advance of potential failure. So fix when fail uh, is obviously uh, not a particularly we uh, efficient way to deal with it because of the impacts of the failure uh, and of the fact you're running the asset into the ground. So it's a matter of making sure that number one, the appropriate money is made available for proper maintenance and upgrades when it's appropriate. And number two, that it is spent on an annual basis as, and not diverted to what are seemingly critical issues to do with service delivery, but ultimately are to the detriment of the asset base that, that, that is being maintained. So what I'm hearing is that planning, um, planning maintenance is really important? Absolutely. And, and, and New Zealand is well on the way. I mean, the studies that, that have been done have identified the maintenance deficit that exists. And now it's a matter of reducing that deficit so that the facilities are being brought, uh, brought up to standard. Now, you know, with, with rapidly changing models of care, it is clearly quite difficult in some instances to have to, to adapt facilities to, to new models of care. But that's just something that has to be managed, but, but they need to be kept in, in good condition. Why is longer term planning important? Longer term planning is important uh, Again, simply because in the short term, you don't want to do something that precludes you doing things in the medium to longer term, or alternatively, is, is something that is not required in the medium to long term. Um, so classically on a major hospital site, um, some kind of master planning is always a very sensible approach because you need to contemplate what happens at the end of the life of the facility you've just built and having having uh, allowed provision for future buildings enables you to do a rather seamless transition into a new facility um, rather than having to go and locate a new site and rebuild a building and all the issues associated with that transfer to the new site. So master planning is critical, but then more particularly making sure that, that what is being built um, can be used for its useful life and is not um, something that's required in the very short term that will no longer be necessary, you know, be required in the medium term and hence need to be uh, uh, removed uh, is clearly a not, not efficient use of government funds.
Has the nature of construction contracting changed? Uh, yes, I mean, for the reasons I outlined previously, it's now difficult for, for contractors to provide fixed price to government, um, notwithstanding their desire to do so and, and to properly compensate them for the risks associated with issues such as uh, supply chain shortages, uh, escalation of costs, lack of, lack of experienced uh, build, uh, contractors um, would be prohibitive and not provide value, to, value for money. So governments are needing to move more towards risk sharing um, and taking away some of those, the more significant impacts that, that occur if they occur, uh, uh, taking the risk away from contractors to do that. And that's forced us into um, collaborative style of contracts um, as opposed to the traditional lump sum um, where um, government sits down with, with contractors and tries to determine where, which areas of the contract is prepared to take a risk on and which areas the government can sensibly assist in, in, in uh, taking risk on the prices that may arise uh, in executing those works. So the general move to, as I said, collaborative contracting, and that brings back into play alliancing um, and incentivised target cost, um, managing contractor-style contracts, which um, varies, but but you know, in a robust market, um, um, contractors tend to move to a lump sum, and government asks for lump sum. Tend, contractors tend to respond. In a market where government's becoming a price taker, it needs to respond to the risk appetite of. Major contractors, and that's where it's seen at the moment. Thanks for listening to Infrastructure for a Better Future. To find out more about the infrastructure challenges we are facing, visit strategy.tiwahanga.govt.nz.